that's the one thing I would say to people who are building community is like, um, I almost think in some ways that victimhood is easier to heal than entitlement. You know, privilege is a constraint, right? And so people who are privileged don't even see how they're constrained from seeing the world in other ways of knowing and other ways of being. And so entitlement's really hard to work with. And in the West, we're bred on a diet of entitlement. And so to deprogram that and to de-school ourselves of that sense of entitlement, one of our internal mantras is a Sufi proverb that's often attributed to the mother. And it says, um, you are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing. You're listening to the Sharing Insights Podcast, a show where we explore stories, strategies, and insights from ecologically and socially beneficial projects throughout Costa Rica. These stories provide landowners everywhere access to unique ideas to inspire better business models for greater success and impact. My name is Jason, and I'm a co-founder of one of these unique places. I've been visiting with other owners of impact centers to discuss the successes, challenges, and insights that they've earned along the way. Join me on the adventure. A more sustainable world awaits. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of meeting with not one, but two quality individuals. Ali Khan and Alnur Lada are brothers and two of the co-founders of the eco-retreat center and intentional community known as Brave Earth. We get deep into ideas like designing a community model that can support members to live there year-round and the differentiation between communal and business responsibilities among members. You also get to hear about their community solidarity network called Fuerza del Amor and what they're doing to integrate their local neighbors into the profit pool. Before we jump back into this episode, though, I'd like to give a shout out to a special listener named Trisha. Trisha has been so kind as to contribute to the Buy Jason a Coffee Fund. Yay, Trisha! Trisha writes that she's been finding our guests' insights useful and that I have an evocative interviewing style. Well, Trisha, I hope that I delivered on this one. Thank you so much, and I'd love to hear what this conversation evokes for you. If you too would like to support the show, you may do so by visiting the link in the show notes or the banner on our website, or simply go to coffee.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I.com forward slash sharing insights. Another way you can now support the show while also making your life better is to go to the new resources page on the website. There, I'm showcasing a number of items that I've found useful in my sustainability journey. Many of the items in the resources page are free. Some of them have affiliate links. If you find something that you think would make your life better and choose to make a purchase with the vendor, I get a little help paying my editors. It's a pretty sweet win-win-win situation. If you find some of the free resources useful, everybody's still winning, so go check it out. Well, there are my shameless plugs inviting in financial sustainability for the show, and without further delay, the interview. I'm here today with Ali Khan and Alnur Lada of Brave Earth or Tierra Valiente. This is a regenerative farm and healing arts center that was founded in 2017, which has become an emerging intentional community. Here at Brave Earth, they offer permaculture design courses, natural building workshops, uh, different types of educational experiences, all the way down to plant walks. 
Two of the founders of Brave Earth are here with me, and we're going to explore not only some of the innovations that maybe they've taken in their natural building efforts, which we'll explore further in our YouTube video, but something that's really important to Brave Earth here is the building of community and the cultivation of community, and not only within the farm here, but also in their efforts of outreach to the neighboring communities. So with that, I want to say thank you to both of you for taking some time out to be with us today and sharing your experiences. Thanks for having mm -hmm. us. Yeah, thank you. For making the trip all the way over here. Yeah, it's been a great tour. I've been really loving this process. So to start off, why don't you guys each tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to want to buy land and invite people in to have the kind of experiences that they're having? Okay, yeah. Um, Maybe say your name because I don't think people. Will yeah, okay, yeah. My name is Ali Khan, and um, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. You know, we I started off. Um, uh, we're born and raised in Vancouver, and uh, ended up being in the finance world, and uh, was in investment banking, asset management. Did my MBA, my CFA, all these designations, and I'm just a little bit lost. You know, I think and. Um, uh, we ended up going to Burning Man and, and working with plants and I'll let Ulner tell his side of the story, but uh, we just, you know, had a, had our minds meld of what we want to create in our realities after being open to different possibilities and things like Burning Man and, you know, just sort of opened our minds. And, um, you know, we wanted to grow our own food. We wanted to live with our community members and our family and our friends we want to start a superfood company and a, and a retreat center. And, you know, we basically made a plan and uh, it just started formulating, you know. It's like uh, I, I think our, our spirits were aligned with this project and, and it really has felt like there has been a, a guiding force that uh, has been inexplicable that has guided us here and, and all the people that have um, contributed to make this a reality. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I, I come from, well... Maybe we start even uh, where, where Elikan started. We come from Vancouver, but our parents are East African of Indian, Arab, Persian descent. Mm -hmm. And uh, we come from a Sufi tribe. And so I think part of our DNA was always like nomadic and uh, always had a, a temporary relationship with, with place because they were in exile and persecuted. And, and so growing up as immigrant children in a foreign place, I think two things happened. One is we had a really strong interest in internationalism and cosmopolitanism and what else is happening in the world. And B, at least for me, this was very strong, like a, a critical lens on the culture in which we were born into. From a very early age, I remember just understanding how spiritually bankrupt the Western culture was, especially when you're immersed in a rich tradition like Sufism and Ismailism and, and the traditions we grew up in. And uh, I had a background in political strategy. I used to run a consultancy in London and then in New York. And after Occupy happened in 2011, I went on a journey and, and started an activist collective with uh, different activists from around the world. And we were doing two things. We, we had a think tank that was trying to get more progressive and radical ideas into the mainstream. And we had an organizing arm that worked directly with social movements, largely peasant movements, farmer movements, indigenous movements, and largely in the global south. 
And so as we were traveling around the world for this work, uh, a lot of it was solidarity work and staying on people's sofas and staying in you know rough areas of Nairobi and Joburg and Bogota and, and, and other places. A bunch of us started to say, well, yeah, it's important that we we fight the existing system and remove the noose of capitalism from the neck of 99% of humanity. And at the same time, we also need to build the alternatives. So like resistance and renewal. And um, so as we started traveling around, my partner at the time, Yael, who's one of the co-founders here and, and lives here with us, we just started visiting different communities. So we visit like Tamara and Portugal and Oroville and Finhorn and... Uh, Damanhorn, Italy, and all of these different places, and just started learning from them. And initially, our intention was to to do this in upstate New York. We were, we were living in New York at the time, and in, in in some ways, Costa Rica was the last place, at least I wanted to be. You know, I was like, there's too many like hippies and new age communities here already, and and then this perfect piece of land manifested. And our, our friend Tom Newmark, who's our neighbor, and um, is an activist and a, and a farmer. They set up uh, probably one of the first biodynamic farms in Central America here on this land. He helped us get this land and, and sort of gave us the proposition. And Alikan and I just kind of knew like that was it, you know. And so there actually wasn't a lot of thinking and a lot of planning in it. It was much more emergent and being willing, really. And so, yeah. And we, we ended up getting this land in 2016, the end of 2016, and started building in 2017. Great. So before you before you even considered buying land, you you really went on a tour. You were investigating community essentially, yeah. and these different Inca villages that you mentioned are very established. And so, what did you find in that tour that you found was uniquely useful to setting you up for success here? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think the the first thing we understood was like the communities that lasted for significantly long periods of time and there was a lot that don't you know the vast majority don't had very strong social infrastructure social architecture social technology like i think of tamara and the forum method and how versed they are in uh, group interaction and you know the, the second is we also saw how lots of communities get gutted from seasonal community members and so you know a place like oroville which is like 70 percent european who come to live in southern India for a couple of months a year, it's very hard to create cohesion in that environment. And we also saw like how the economic engine is so central because there's a lot of like you fend for yourself in these communities and you're paying your way to live there. And yet there's no communal way to make money. And so one of the lenses we brought to this is like, how do we use capital to build the post-capitalist infrastructure? Because as a community, we don't want to be in the business of extraction. You know, like I jokingly always say, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want to commodify anything. I don't want to sell anything. I don't want to own, dominate, acquire. I want to live in, in gift and um, in non-hierarchical structures. And so that was one of the first things we decided was we actually built the retreat center side first as an economic engine. It's run as a co-op. That profit gets shared among community members, but also goes back into the community. And so that was a critical thing for us. And and also non-ownership. So uh, we're stewards of the land. All the partners, all the community members are, are essentially trustees in a trust rather than, you know, private 
ownership of land because as soon as you get into that realm then you're already in the realm of commodification and you're already in the realm of hierarchy and so we, we yeah we wanted to subvert those existing systems and so we we learned a lot about what we could and should do especially from a community like Tamara who's been doing this for 40 years and at a you know pretty significant scale to 300 people and we also learned a lot about what we didn't want to do <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to add to that really good yeah no that that's well said I think I also did a tour we, we kind of did this collective tour and when we we looked at a lot of communities and there was just not resonance. I don't know. I, you know, I, at first we thought we maybe we joined some communities and, it, you know, there was a knowing in us that we needed to start something on our own and take the best aspects of these things and, and do things differently. And that was in resonance with, with what we were feeling and seeing. So yeah, I couldn't imagine like joining a community versus starting. So it's, it's interesting how that played out for us, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I hear what you're saying about uh, the seasonal aspect of members being a significant challenge. And I, I've seen it here, even uh, efforts that we've had in our region of the South Pacific to have like bioregional councils where landowners in the whole region are coming together talking about what can we do together, as well as seeing many of those individual places. And that whole project really fell apart when the rainy season came and mm-hmm. everyone dispersed. That was many years ago. The internet has a lot more tools now to keep people connected as they move around. But still, that that phenomenon is something I've experienced and I've seen a number of places get a big push of energy and enthusiasm and membership during the dry seasons. And then, yeah, people are lonely and alone in the wet season, the, the few that are holding it down. So I hear you that is being a challenge. What do you guys have in your model that helps to minimize that happening here? Well, I, th- I think there's really two things. One is that we're sort of explicit about like the for new partners and people coming in, especially on the residential side. Now we finish the retreat side. We're moving into that side. Is that we we want people here at least six months a year, and our ideal is at least fifty percent of the community is here full time. This is their primary home and residence. But it's hard to get people here six months a year. And and one of the things we're we're thinking about is creating our own school. You know, I, I think one of the sort of dominant critiques we all have of, of the psychosis of Western culture is, is the education system itself, which is essentially uh, set up to create essentially if for job creation. <laughs> you know, that, that's what it, it's vocational training and it's a numbing. And so um, how do we create a school system that we could do an entire school year in six months, which then frees up the parents to de-school and unschool their children for the other six months? Also having this sort of shared economic engine, because a big part of the reason people leave is is essentially that, right? And so if we the the model that we've been working with, and it's still hypothesis right now, right? Like we're 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 only opening in January. It's called 502525, which is all the profit from whether it's the surplus of a farm, the retreat center, the eco lodge itself, lines of business that might come out of this place, superfood companies, whatever, goes into one shared profit pool. And 50% of that profit comes back to the community. So it's, you know, one share, one vote, direct democracy, we decide together, where will those funds go? And that sort of deepens our place here and the reinvestment in the land and all of that. And then 25% will go into profit sharing, like an ESOP, employee share ownership. 
where there's no distinction between labor and capital. So if somebody works on the land or they're one of the partners who put in funds, um, they're profit sharing in that. And so there's some surplus and some dividend that gets distributed among people. And then 25% would go into a fund to try to help replicate these types of communities. So rather than more people coming here, which, you know, doesn't really make sense, right? This is, It's not a huge piece of land. It's 88 acres. Half of it is rainforest that you wouldn't touch. Um, our plan is to cut the minimum amount of trees as possible and really work with the natural contours of the land. And so it's better to help other people set up their own communities, especially if they share our philosophy, which is, you know, we're trying to create post-capitalist infrastructure, as it, as we said earlier, right? Non-hierarchy, non-ownership of land, decommodification, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, th those are just some of the things. But and, and at the same time, you you know, you can't really control these things, right? And so it's just a balance of setting some structure in place, but also allowing for emergence. Mm -hmm. I think that's really well said. The only thing I would add is that we're really blessed to be in this in this area, this land. We're near La Fortuna, and um, it's like the best weather. You know, it rains a little bit all year. There's sun all year. Um, there's not it's not kind of like the beach, the weather by the beach where you're like rained out and it's like super monsoony. It's like even in our wet season, it's it's a flux of sun and rain. And so I think that also along with like, yeah, having the Brave Earth Retreat Center, which, we, you know, we're, we're going to have programming all year and that being the economic engine for us to plug into, I think that's also helpful is, is the weather. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. The retreat center side of things is also, I see as a solution to that question mm -hmm. I asked, you know, mm -hmm. like, like you said, having an income model that everyone can benefit from helps them from having to go back to wherever they come from and work. What is it about? Like, so, so that brings me to thinking about, okay, you've got this retreat center model. Members are all share profit sharing. And what about? labor contributions to the business model? Is it a model where everyone who's part of the community has to contribute time and effort to the business model? Or is there an option to like pay more and contribute less time or contribute more time and pay less to come in? Or how do you, how do you create a sense of equanimity among members who are contributing to and co-benefiting from this your various business mm -hmm. models yeah it's a great question so the retreat center is run like a retreat center where you know there's room and board and and the retreat center makes that that those funds and as owner said it will eventually go into a 50 25 25 model what's a little different about us is that our community members what we're attracting and we're bringing in is like um you know, masters in a sense. So people who who are members here are leading things like men's um, men's circles. Um, they're leading uh, workshops, and so they're also participating from bringing in groups. And so it's like a, a shared. Uh, it's almost like a, a shared baby where we're all taking care of it and feeding and feeding the engine. So you know, a lot of our our retreats are going to be internally. Um, crafted by brave earth productions and so we're we're working on that as a team with a lot of the shareholders who are here and bringing in programming that's super unique and um geared to our our superpowers essentially mm -hmm. and yeah no and that that 
the way we think about it is like so th there is there's like seva time right so everyone in the community puts in roughly 10 hours of service into the community in some way and it's not policed in any way if, if you're contribution is that you're walking around with your mala and praying or doing body work on people or or whatever it is you know it's like a trust-based system that you will energetically contribute to the field and and honor the land and you know give more than you take but for the people who want income let's say beyond the the dividend then we pay them for their labor right so they can work in the retreat center they can work in the echo lodge they can work in the farm and we're going to pay those rates anyways. You know, we have a preference to hire local Costa Ricans because, you know, it, it just makes more sense to do that. And we'd rather have Costa Ricans in the in the profit pool, in the share pool and in the co-op and and sort of normalize these types of, of models. But ra rather than like paying less, it's like everybody contributes the same. And if you have a need, then you let us know and we figure out a way to get you income for that. You know, um, we also want to create a lot of like micro businesses, right? So we have a volunteer right now who's an amazing bamboo worker and that's his passion and that's what he wants to do. And so when we finish the build side, we're probably just going to donate our bamboo equipment to him and help him set up a, a shop here, you know, so he he could do that. And so, yeah, that's how we, we, we think about it is more like we're in family, we're in dialogue, uh, we're in relationship and we just discuss ways to create a collective abundance for all of us. And there are people in the community who also run their own businesses on the side, right? They're like, it's mostly a community of, of healers, activists, and artists. So some of the artists sell their own stuff. Healers would, you know, use the retreat center. A couple of the activists work in different NGOs where they can do distributed organizing work. And so it's, it's kind of to each their own need, essentially. And, and we do discuss it as a community. Like, what are your needs? Like, what would allow you to live, you know, with sufficiency? And that's we also think in those terms of, like, private sufficiency, public luxury. You know, like, we when we, we were building the residential side, we prejudiced the commons, you know. So the common spaces will be really beautiful, but our housing is, is simple, right? It's not, it's not slumming it, but it's not bougie, you know. It's something in between. And... What it does is it just keeps the, the costs low enough for the type of people we want to attract. Okay. So the members that are part of the project now are all in this agreement that when they're here, they're making weekly contributions to the place. Do you have any kind of formal like community living agreements or member requirements that are written that mm -hmm. uh, either short-term or long-term members or visitors have to agree to in being here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we can we can share the document with you if you want. Oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot yeah. of people would appreciate mm -hmm. that, sure. Happy to, yeah. We also have what we call like a mystical anarchist etiquette. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's sort of the, the traditions we come from, right? From a political philosophy, uh, you know, anarchism is essentially about localization and self-governance and self-determination, but not in an individualist frame. It's not libertarianism. And mysticism is direct relationship to the divine. And so we try to sort of create space for that. And, you know, when we talk about etiquette, it's not in like a European way of manners and social form. It's um, being responsive to a living planet and being in dialogue with not just the natural world and the more than human world, but also the, the frequency and the energy in a room, you know. And so 
etiquette is like pre-law, it's pre-morality, it's pre-cognition. It can't be taught, but it can be practiced in communal environments. And that's, and as like Ali Khan was saying, you know, we're, we're trying to cultivate a community of masters who are um, attentive to their etiquette, mm -hmm. as opposed to you must do this or you must do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, thank you for offering to offer uh, to share those documents. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, excited to read sure. it. And, uh, what kind of daily or weekly interactions does the community practice to keep that cohesion going? Mm -hmm. We have a weekly forum type session where we we do a check in and we we hold space if there's issues or things happening and. Um, yeah, it's it's just a place where we all connect, you know, and 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 then there's like um, various circles, working circles and groups, and and our stewardship circle, where we also connect, and you know, we we can call council whenever we need. So if we're going through interpersonal issues with a partner or with somebody in the land, we call council, and uh, two or all of our members join. So there's just various touch points that emerge. But the weekly councils is the main one. Mm -hmm. And and we have this sort of holarchy, synarchy organizing model. So the, as Alikan says, these different working circles, working groups. And so infrastructure, um, build, uh, spirit, which is like design and, and feel, experience, uh, culture, etc. And, and um, anyone can join any of those circles. Each circle has a lead and that lead comes in and lets their decisions be known or what the internal dynamic is to a stewardship circle, which is made of uh, six people uh, in the community. And so there, there's that touch point. And there's also just a lot of shared activity. You know, we, we do like morning practice together often. Um, there's like a women's circle. There's like singing circles. There's, you know, and, and to be honest, what's I think is like critical in the community as well is medicine work. You know, there's, there has been a sort of a shared desire to work with plant medicine individually. It's not like it's a, a public thing that's offered or whatever, but every person has their own spiritual practice. And we, we say there's like uh, three main areas of inquiry, which is eros, gnosis, and polis. And eros is, is not necessarily open love, but it's more like being in full expression around your relationships and not just relationships and in intimate couples, but relationships amongst all of us, uh, relationship to the natural world. And uh, how do we cultivate our erotic relationship with the divine, you know? And so there is a tending to that relational tissue. And then the gnosis is, as we were saying earlier, direct experience to the divine. And there's lots of ways to get there. Like Ali Khan and I come from a Sufi, Sufi tradition, but there's people who come from Taoist traditions or Buddhist traditions or shamanic traditions. And we share that knowledge amongst each other. So people do their research and their exploration and, and then come back to the group and, and share what they're learning in their various practices. And that spiritual exploration also holds us together. And then the polis is rethinking the political economy. You know, this is the land being in stewardship, uh, explorations around biomimicry with architecture or biophilia with land design uh, or direct democracy. And, you know, the people who want to geek out on those things also spend time together exploring that. So those are kind of the we don't say like this is what we're necessarily about, but we just say these are three areas of inquiry, polis, eros and gnosis. And they're kind of held together by bios, which is the the natural world, right? The the sort of case and casing in which we live, which is which is Gaia herself. 
do these terms come from the Sufi religion or, or no no they're ironically they're they're Greek and Latin um, but they're just shorthands and expressions for for that yeah okay mm-hmm. so you have your community members that are more long-term residentially based that have made some form of investment into the project and then you have guests that come for the retreats and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you have any type of volunteer opportunities that you welcome people in on? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So we we said we weren't open to volunteers at one point and we just got a flex of volunteers. So it's really been an organic process of like word of mouth and, and friends, more so as we're like ramping up for the retreat center and people are just plugging in in the garden and and want to do co- like uh, learn what, how we're building and are doing work exchanges so there's opportunities we don't have any formal programs yet i think um once the retreat center is running and we see what our needs are and um the housing where we would house people and all that stuff we may have a more formal program especially once the community site's built and there's just more housing available for people to stay in but yeah, we're, we're definitely open. And I think we've been thinking a lot about like having an exchange program where it's like a residency and, and kind of, you know, people participate in some of the workshops that we are, we're catering to, whether it be permaculture or, or our plant medicine or uh, men's retreat. And it's almost like an initiation, you know, as we, as we see the world and the state it's in, like a lot of young people need need these rites of passage and and um so maybe gearing a a program that's like you know semi-volunteer semi-initiation you know several month long so there's a lot of things that we're kind of working out but uh nothing formal as of yet so currently the people who have found you and been accepted in as volunteers do you find it harmonious and useful to fit them into these community circles or you kind of just have that aside and no we we integrate them yeah they come to community council and community council is open to to everyone the stewardship circle and more of the work the working groups they probably don't depends on how long they stay like we have someone right now who's who's going to be helping in programming and so it really just depends on the person but our, our aim is to integrate everyone who stays as if they are a family member right and not creating like exclusion in any way um you know i think the hesitation we usually have around volunteers is like we see a lot of communities like exploiting young people essentially and they come and they work for free for months and months and months and yes they are learning something but we don't want to be in the commodification business Mm -hmm. in any way and so that's just the hard thing to balance, right? And But if someone's like, hey, I really need this and I want to be here, you know, we just had someone here for like a month who just needed a place to stay and she's a single mom. And so like you just say yes, right? It's, just, it's almost just like case by case because we just want to be open to the emergence of it. But as Ali Khan says, at some point, it would be really important for us to do a proper like uh, organized fellowship of some kind for sure. Mm-hmm. So Moving outside of Brave Earth's, I guess, uh, property lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Biosphere. You know, there's uh, your biosphere. I like that. Uh, well, even within it, I, mm-hmm. I see you have a, a significant team of neighbors that are helping you build this gorgeous, amazing place. And you talked about, uh, you know, working in share models for those folks as well so that they're benefiting long-term from uh, what they're helping you build here. 
and uh, there was mention about you having an um, kind of an outreach arm of the project here called Fuerza del Amor, and I understand that is one of your ways of reaching to the outer community, the outer biosphere, maybe. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that. What are your plans mm-hmm. for uh, touching the lives in the Pueblo around here? Mm-hmm. So the, the, this kind of came out of the, the COVID moment. We, we've always had plans to create bioregional self-sufficiency and sovereignty. And when the COVID moment happened, it just gave us the opportunity to do that because we weren't distracted with retreats and gatherings and, and all of that. And uh, Alan Lager, who's one of our community members, is sort of spearheading this work. And um, it's essentially a mutual aid network model. And that, that's actually related to the last question as well of how we gather. And, and so we the model is that this is the average Pueblo size in, in Costa Rica. It's like 60 or 70 percent of Costa Rica is about 200, 300 people person communities. And so there's about 110 houses or something in this area. So if we had 40 people join this volunteer network, that's 10 people every Sunday, if it's once a month volunteering from the community. And what we offer is the organizing support. We have three-person organizing team, Alan and, and two others. And we pay um, about $500 in hardware per house. And we do these Solidarity Sundays where we go to each person's house in the community. Eventually, we'll get, you know, hopefully, inshallah, we get to them all. And we, it's like a mutual aid construction, essentially. So the organizing happens beforehand, people come on Sundays, and we can help um, do the basics, build walls, put in toilets, what's needed, put in a primary garden. So Sarah Hartley, who's our permaculture lead, and chief farmer, she organizes a bunch of us to do that. And then whoever's on the land from Brave Earth, comes and supports as well. So there might be five or 10 of us and 10 local people and three organizers, and that would be like the ideal Sunday. And from that sort of mutual aid construction, if you will, uh, a kind of whole model has has spun out of it where there's a community hub called Mycelio. Um, there's going to be a community food forest. We just got eight acres of land that's essentially been gifted for us to create a, a secondary garden, essentially. So if your your house has your primary stuff, this would have more like uh, sweet potato and yucca and and uh, you know higher touch crops essentially, and that that would be like an open food forest for the community. And from that, there's also community policing arm and uh, like co council for people. So there's mediation, so we don't need external police officers who are often you know not in tune with the with the community itself coming from the external world. So a whole kind of little community ecosystem, ecosystem services, let's say, is emerging from Fuerza de Moore. So how are you, are you organizing this uh, centralized from your hub here? Or are you uh, organizing this from the Pueblos Desarrollo? Or? It's two local community members and a land from our community. So it's a mix between us and our neighbors, essentially. It's, a, it's the broader community coming together to do this. And we, we, because we, we are building the retreat side, we, we had a lot of the tools and the construction equipment. So we, on Sundays, we allow that equipment to be used. So they're using the tools and things to make doors and toilets and stuff. But then there's, so they're, they'll work at site and they'll work here on the Sundays. And then, um, the house has been rented where it's the hub, as Elner called it, the mycelio, which will be like the networking place, which they're working on now, actually, to get it running to be like a, a community center, a coffee shop um, place for connection, you know, 
Yeah. And about uh, outside your gates here, about how far is kind of the the, the center of the the town here, the the pueblo? Like it's sort of it's Just like there, yeah, it's right? like five minutes maybe. It's a pretty small community. It's got a high school and a little. It's it's yeah. yeah it's like a normal. It's like your average yeah. town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the the community gardens and fruit forests and this community center mm-hmm. are they kind of in the the middle of the of your space here? Is that kind of at the gates or no, oh, you no, have it's another outside. property outside? No, it's, of it's outside. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. like it's right in the middle of the community. So okay. so basically, when you enter off the, the the main road, San Isidro Pinas Blanca starts. It's actually called San Juan, our little mm-hmm. uh, our little pueblo. Um, so when you come out of San Isidro Pinas Blancas, you're in San Juan, and that's the pueblo of about 300 people. And so it's right in the middle of that. So it's mm-hmm. it's sort of we're at the end of the uh, of the pueblo, like sort of we're almost on the edge of the eternal rainforest here, and so it's right in the middle of town. Mm-hmm. And that's where the mycelio is as well. There's a house being rented that right there in the, the house and the farm are right beside each other mm-hmm. okay and these are something that you bought or they're being donated to the cause that we they just gave it to us for really uh, low monthly rent the owners know what we're doing for the community and part of the community and so they've said take these long leases for super reasonable rent and yeah like you know you know in, 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 a, in a place like costa rica for a few hundred dollars a month you can get uh, like a really like a perfect little center in the middle of town and you know we're also using regenerative agriculture and organic methods and so you know if you've been they've been growing yucca for example in conventional destructive agrochemical processes right and so they get to regenerate their land and it's not being used anyways right now and so the community benefits from it so landowners in the community who have multiple pieces of land are really open to that and we think you know, let's see, we're in the first year, it's super early days, it's an experiment, but there's a possibility for this to be a very replicable model. And almost like we feel as international people coming into, you know, another country, that this is not just like a nice to have, it's it's critical that we're integrated into the community, mm-hmm. and we're of service to the community that we're embedded in, firstly. Secondly, that we believe in localization. We believe in, you know, in, in anarchist philosophy, we call it subsidiarity, which is like the, the base of power has to be where decisions are, are made, which is the local level. And so, you know, we, we feel like this is a sort of critical missing piece in the infrastructure of communities, which is creating that bioregional self-sufficiency. Right. And look, when collapse happens and it will happen, you know, we're, we probably have 10 years left at best of the Western way of living, you know, like, you can't, if we just look at the economic system as it is, it requires 3% growth per year, right? That, that's the minimum the World Bank and the IMF and others say is necessary, right? And in this growth-based industrial capitalist system, that means you're, you're doubling the global economy every 20 years. Like 3% a year doesn't sound a lot, like a lot, but that's, just think about that. In 20 years, double the amount of Big Macs, iPhones, Toyota, Priuses, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's physically impossible. And with debt-based currency, you ha- you have to grow the pie in order for the Ponzi scheme to not implode on itself. And so part of the thinking is like, the people who are going to sort of be the most resilient in the face of those types of global machinations are people and communities that have a strong web of interpersonal relationship and food sovereignty, and ideally indigenous wisdom of their of place 
those are sort of the three factors that we, we want to contribute to. So in setting this all up for the local regional community, have you done any kind of like surveying or uh, kind of deep questioning with mm -hmm. the people here that you're wanting to serve to see what mm -hmm. they are looking for, what they'd be hoping yeah, no, for? Yeah, of course, of course like it's that, that, that's really like the first step. So this idea emerged from and with the community. And then when we, we realized it, like roughly the scale needed to make this thing work, right? Like you have a 300 person community. If you want 10 volunteers per a Sunday, you're going to need at least 40 people in that pool. And so Alan and uh, Ali and Krishna, the the two local women who work with the land went door to door and are, I think they're still in process of doing it. Every house in the neighborhood and having a conversation with, with every single person in the neighborhood. And then also, and I'm sure this is true for most towns, there's like an unofficial local mayor, this amazing woman named Rocio, who runs the local water. She runs, she's like the IRF locally, and she's like the mama of the neighborhood. You know, she kind of knows everything from who needs what to what the local gossip is, right? And we work really closely with her. Mm -hmm. And actually, Alex, one of the, the, the FDA crew, uh, is her daughter. And so it's deeply embedded in the community. It, it, like I think that's the only way to do it, right? Like the the old model of believing that you're separate, uh, and even the idea of charity is so laughable, right? It's like we don't believe in charity. You know, there's that old line that says charity only exists because we don't have justice. You know, we we come from a solidarity lens, and so that's always happening in in dialogue, and and we always learn. Like of course, as as outsiders, as foreigners, as gringos, like we don't know what we don't know. And that's part of the humility is like we have blind spots and we are constantly making mistakes, but we we ask for that feedback of like, how do we show up better as, as community members? Wow. You know, you guys have really offered so much. I, I know that myself and if myself, then many others are, are really going to take so much from this in their to help improve their own models for how they're approaching their projects. I'm really happy to hear that you're taking that time to connect with the neighborhood and get to know their needs and wants and fears before uh, jumping into these projects. It sounds like you guys are really doing so much to get yourselves off to a strong start. And even though you're one of the maybe newer impact centers in the country relatively to some of the other people I've been interviewing that have been here for 25, 30 years, uh, from the looks around, you guys have done a lot of planning, a lot of team building, which is um, maybe one last little question that I'd like to uh check in with you about. I did want to approach a little bit about your natural building tactics, which um, are super impressive. I, I'm in love with the place. I think we're going to have to keep a lot of that conversation for our YouTube video later, maybe in the morning. We'll explore some of that in detail. So if anyone listening wants to find out more about that, make sure to uh, check the link in the show notes to the video. But before we go, yeah, let's talk a little bit about team building. You said that you guys are really, you've been attracting experts in various fields and really intentionally building your community here through the gifts that people have. Is there anything in your approach to finding these people that has been systematic or something or some ideas that other listeners could think about when they want to build a community uh, they want to get more members involved in their project they want to build a team they want to co-create but they don't really have maybe a strong network right away of people to reach out to or they've already exhausted their network and they want to 
find those people to fill niches? Do you have any advice for for that? It's a hard question. Um, the honest answer is I, I don't really know. You know, it. I mean, it's just been so organic for us. Like Ulner, uh, as we talked about, is an activist and started the rules and various other um NGOs and just met like a network of like-minded people and also through through working with the plants and you know we've been studying with, with plant medicine for a while just being introduced to really like-minded people and and you know the team dynamic is, is it's actually been one of our biggest challenges and our biggest opportunities for growth I know it's like um, it's it's gotten my um growth edge uh caught a few times and uh you know because when we first started this i i I was the only one who who was who came on the land at first and so you know as we built the team and and got systems going and you know having that background where you know you can handle lots of complexity and as the different team members plugged in we we really had to like step back and and relook at how our team working systems were working and looked at um, these circles that seemed to be working a lot better. And then just having like systems for interpersonal conflict and, and being open and, and open to challenges and having an open heart and understanding that we, we get caught in our stories and, and things and just having a lot of compassion for one another. So, you know, there's so many facets of, of teamwork and team building and attracting the right people that I, I, I don't, I don't quite know where to go with that, but um, it's just, I think, Really, it comes down to the self-work in many ways for how our team has co-evolved. It's just like understanding that we're in this animate field and the field is alive and approaching conflict or meetings is with the lens of how do we, how do we serve the field? How do what, what I'm going to say serve the field versus, you know, anything else, you know, and, and just being open and doing that self-work and self-practice. Um, that makes sense yeah totally no i i think that that creates the the resonant field and like most of the projects i see where it's like you know an individual usually from especially in costa rica from california who doesn't have a plan who just bought a piece of land and then wants to like stay the sole owner and then uh, all of a sudden they're wondering why there's like so much conflict and it's because like the imposition immediately off the bat is one of hierarchy and patriarchy and it's overly structured right and what we find is like the deeper we go into our spiritual practice the more we let go of concepts like ownership preference identity you know all the things that the mystical traditions would say to you that block our ability to transcend the subject object duality you know the idea of the other and the more we're in that practice, then that resonant field attracts people who are also in that selfless mm-hmm. practice, you know, and that's the most powerful thing. And I feel like the deeper we go into our generosity and, you know, radical hospitality for the not just the people that come, but the more than human world, you know, making offerings to this land, being reverent in reverence to this land, praying to the natural world, the land starts to trust us and when the land trusts us it almost takes care of who comes here you know and who stays like there's people who i thought oh you know i could see them being like partners in this project and the land 
and the spirits of the land give them such a difficult time that they just don't want to come back. And it's almost like the land naturally filters who comes. And then there's these people who I'm sometimes, you know, on the fence about will they stay or not. And then they have these massive breakthroughs while they're here. You know, it's such a potent field. I literally, you know, the, our, our neighbor calls this the, the Goldilocks sort of region. You know, it's like, as Ali Khan was saying, like perfect temperature, you know, 80 degrees all year round. And it's kind of always cool, but always warm. And, you know, it's the, one of the best farming lands because of the, the volcanic sediment, you know, we're 30 kilometers from, from Arnal. And we have the children's eternal rainforest and a very healthy biosphere and biosystem and biome in this whole area. The land has really done a lot of that work, but it's not like the land in isolation. It's the land in relationship to the field of prayer that we create, right? And, you know, if we're being good students of our culture and we know how to diagnose the psychosis of late-stage capitalism, which is a practice we're all trying to be in, we see like the two deepest shadows from a thought form perspective are victimhood and entitlement. And so... That's also two thought forms we try to work with on ourselves, you know, and finding those aspects of ourselves that are caught in the loop of victimhood or caught in the loop of entitlement. And that's the one thing I would say to people who are building community is like, um, I almost think in some ways that victimhood is easier to heal than entitlement. You know, privilege is a constraint, right? And so people who are privileged don't even see how they're constrained from seeing the world in other ways of knowing and other ways of being. And so entitlement's really hard to work with. And in the West, we're bred on a diet of entitlement. And so to deprogram that and to de-school ourselves of that sense of entitlement, one of our internal mantras is a Sufi proverb that's often attributed to the mother. And it says, um, you are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing. You are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing. So you've been given the bounty of life and you know, the thousand generations of ancestors that came before you to be incarnate in this moment, and you've been entrusted with all of that, and you're entitled to absolutely nothing. Because if you know how to manage and be in gratitude for your endowments, you walk in a very different way than if you feel entitled to it. And as soon as we feel a sense of entitlement energy, that's how we know, you know, there's not going to be resonance between us. You know, and, and and it's a very delicate dance to play because you don't necessarily want to be in judgment, but you want to be in discernment. And it's a practice as well. And it also requires finding it within you, right? The embodiment aspect of that is the most important, actually. The more we clear our field, the more we open the space to find the others. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you guys so much. You've really offered this community a lot to think about and consider in moving forward and uh, myself included uh, primarily I can speak for myself so thanks so much for sharing your experiences I look forward to getting to know both of you better and seeing more of this land and sharing more of the really inspiring things that you're doing here thanks so much your pleasure before Thank we you for close, doing this project oh hey I'm just following my calling you know um Tell our listeners a little bit about where they can find you online. Yeah, sure. We we have a website, www.braverest.com. And we have some retreats coming up if people want to tune in. There's a permaculture design course at the end of the year. Um, what are the dates on that? It's November, uh, mid-November, I believe. So you can tune into that. And also you can tune into the Patreon site if you want as well. 
if you want to support. We're we're trying to cultivate a membership um, a membership model, and so uh, it's essentially pre-paying for the stay, but it just allows us to manage cash flow and support our solidarity fund. So we, when we run retreats, we want to make sure that low-income people, that locals, that activists, and those who are not uh, who don't necessarily benefit in the same way from the current extraction paradigm have access to what we're doing here. Okay, and so what kind of things will listeners find if they go to your Patreon? What's the Patreon's on our website, right? Yeah, it's on our website um, under on Contact Us, I believe. Um, there's like tiers of, of monthly membership models. So um, yeah, just just yeah. check out our site and and okay. it'll, it'll it'll all be there. And uh, and also um, as we open up the volunteer. Um, program that we're going to be thinking about for next year we'll we'll, we'll let you know and uh yeah go yeah. from there and, and you know a lot of our passion as well is is helping other communities set up so it's you know a lot of people who come here are like oh we'd love to be one of the partners and you know our feeling is like better to have a more distributed model and approach to these things to have lots of cultural crystals who are trying to build post-capitalist infrastructure now and so if we can help in that way, yeah, we're always happy to do that. Okay, fantastic. Wow, there's so much more I'd like to unpack with you guys, but I think this is it for this interview and uh, we'll, we'll see where it all goes. Thanks again for your time. Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, brother. thank you. Yup, I like that one. You know, I'm still not fully sure in what direction this podcast will go as it evolves or who's going to get the most value out of it, but I've felt compelled to give a voice to some of the mavericks in the world who've begun experimenting with unique solutions to some of our world's ecological woes. Most of the solutions to our ecological and even economic woes include resource sharing on some level, and that points to community. The question continues to arise though, how do we navigate the benefits as well as the challenges of living more communally with our neighbors? Especially in a world where most of us have grown up to fancy ourselves as individuals. This is something that most people would do very well to start exploring right now. Many are finding it imperative to start preparing their inner as well as their outer environments for whatever changes may be coming ahead. Should resources ever become scarce, which is a growing concern for a lot of people in most places of the planet, coming together with others in our neighborhoods to begin conversations around resource and skill sharing is something that will become increasingly important. As a matter of fact, there's a great website called nextdoor.com that serves as a community bulletin board where you can engage locally in those very types of conversations and resource sharing opportunities. It's currently active in the US, Canada, Australia, and several countries in the European Union, and it's well used to connect people on a neighborhood level. If you live in any of those countries, you might do well to check it out. It's nextdoor.com. Your community is already around you. Brave Earth is a great example of Napoleon Hill's principle of a mastermind. When a few or more people begin working together in a state of harmony toward a common purpose, a new mind is born. That group mind, or mastermind as he calls it, has a greater potential for creation and problem solving than the sum of the individual minds do on their own. Big thanks to Ali Khan and Alnur for sharing some of the methods that they're designing into their systems to take advantage of the diversity within their growing mastermind. 
and with the permaculture principles and ethics intentionally interwoven into every stage of their process. If you're thinking that Brave Earth is your kind of place and you want an excuse to visit, consider putting their upcoming permaculture design course on your calendar for November. The teacher, Scott Gallant of Porvenir Designs, is one of the leading permaculture teachers in Costa Rica, as well as a community co-founder and hopefully a future guest on the show. I guess what I'm saying is that you won't likely be disappointed. As always, please rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening so more people can find us and benefit from the insights that we're taking the time to share here. Until next time, be well and be kind.